We are in the middle of a series of some on the book of Psalms. And this is our eighth uh, message in the book of Psalms. We're actually spending a second week looking at Psalm 51. And in the process, we've also, in a sense, started kind of a new short little series. Um, where are we going as a, as a body? Where are we? What are we about as a body of Christ Community Church? But just like if, if I were going to Google Maps and I was trying to figure out where to go, there's actually two things you've got to put in. First, you've got to put in where you are. It won't give you directions to some place unless it knows where you started and where you're going. And if you're trying to get here, it doesn't care about that anyway. It doesn't know where this is. And a lot of places in this part of the world. But nonetheless, for us to know where we are going, we needed to know where we are. And so last week and this week, we have been laying a foundation of grace. Last week we began in Psalm 51, and we talked about the fact that when we come to God, we come to God entirely dependent upon His grace. We do that, first of all, because He's the only one that offers forgiveness. And number two, we saw that when we come to Him, we show up on this planet already disqualified. We show up already guilty. And so when we come to Him, we come completely dependent upon His grace. We can't come with excuses. Well, I I didn't know that was a sin. We can't come blaming other people. Well, if it wasn't for so-and-so, I wouldn't have lost my temper. We can't come saying, well, but next time I will, or, or I promise that next time it will be different. We come to God empty-handed. And we fall completely and entirely upon His grace. This morning we continue in Psalm 51. And we see not only do we start that way, not only do we have to come with that foundation... But when we do come to Him, we can completely trust that He is a God who forgives. And we can completely trust that He will empower us for the future. Look with me at Psalm 51 this morning, beginning in verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 12. Psalm 51, verses 7 through 12. David writes, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Would you pray with me again, please? Father, this morning as we look at your word, I pray that your spirit would keep us attuned to you. That you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to our minds, that you would ultimately, through your spirit, speak to our wills. 
and that we would indeed trust that you are a forgiving God and we would look to you to help us in the future. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. David begins by asking us to trust God for forgiveness. In verses 7 and 8, there is a series of, there's a request and then a a future tense. God, please do this and then this will happen. And he does that three times. He says, wash me, I'm sorry, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness and the bones which you have broken will rejoice. Three times a request, three times he trusts completely that God will do something. The first, purify me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that the Israelites used. It's not mentioned very often in Scripture, but a few times. One of which was back in Egypt in in, uh, the book of Exodus when God told them to take hyssop and basically paint your door with blood so that when the death angel comes, you will be passed over. It's... It's a, a sign that that God's going to keep His promise to protect the Israelites. Then farther on in Leviticus 14, there is a, a long explanation of if someone has leprosy or if a house is contaminated and it's been declared clean by the priests, you take hyssop and you dip it in water and you sprinkle that person or that house as a sign that it is indeed clean. Same thing in in Numbers 19, uh, to cleanse someone who had touched a dead body. There were tons of rules about how one could become unclean. And in a couple of those, God said, when that happens, you take hyssop and you dip it in water and you sprinkle them as a sign that they have been made clean. And then finally, the writer of Hebrews says that in Exodus 24, when God was giving the covenant on Mount Sinai, You take hyssop and you dip it in blood and you sprinkle not only Aaron and the stone, but also the people. You sprinkle them with blood as a sign of the covenant. So we have two uses of hyssop, one for cleansing and one as uh, God making a covenant with his people. I promise to do this. I think David's referring to the first one, to cleansing. God had already made a covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. This is after that. Remember, this is after he had sinned with Bathsheba. And so what he's saying is, God, if you will, just like in the Old Testament, just like with Moses when you commanded them to make someone clean, if you do that, God, then I trust that I will be clean. God, if you cleanse me, then I will be whiter than snow. Isaiah talks about our our sin being scarlet and red, and and David makes the comparison of cleansing being white, clean, pure. God, if, if you do that, then I will be. And then in verse 8, God, make me know joy and gladness. And God, if you do that then the bones that were crushed will rejoice. There is, in a sense, a cause and effect. God, if you do something in my life, there will be an effect. David's not making a promise. 
He's just saying this will happen. He expounds on that in verse 14. He says, My tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Again, he's not making a promise. The language doesn't speak to that. He's not saying, God, if you cleanse me, if you forgive my sins, God, think of the PR it would be for you if the king of Israel praised you. It's not what he's saying. Look at verse 15. He's asking for help. Oh, Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. David is entirely dependent upon God even for the ability to form the words of praise. We need Him as we come to Him. We need Him when we sin. We need Him and His Spirit to offer praise to Him. And David says, God, when You do that, when You cleanse me, the result naturally is praise. If you have found yourself in sin and you have confessed that and you still feel a heaviness, then my question is, do you understand grace? Do you understand what God has done for you? Because when we come to Him and receive forgiveness, there should be a joy. There should be an excitement that says... I have offended the God of the universe. And that holy and infinite and wonderful and majestic God has seen fit to cleanse me, to forgive me. Not only that, but He did that through the sending of His Son. He did that by allowing His one and only Son to die on the cross for me. And that should bring joy to our lives. When we come to God empty-handed, not trying to offer Him something, trusting in Him, we can have confidence that we will be forgiven. And that's good news. But it doesn't stop there. David goes on beginning in verse 10 and he has six more requests. But they all deal with the future. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Same word create as in the creation. God, you need to do something new in my heart. You see, I know me, I think David is saying. When I get up off my knees, I'm still the same person I was before I got down on my knees. God, create in me something new. I don't know if through the Holy Spirit, David was looking into the future, thinking of what would happen, thinking of what Ezekiel said several hundred years later in Ezekiel 36 when he talked about that same idea of God giving us a new heart. But Ezekiel says God's going to take out our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, the promise of the new covenant, the promise of our Savior. I don't know if David was looking down at a time and anticipated that. It would be like me back in the 80s calling up Steve Jobs and said, hey, do you think you could create a portable music player that would hold thousands of songs I could put in my pocket? They would have thought I was crazy back in the 80s, I think. Maybe someone read this in David's time and thought he was crazy. Uh, You don't get a new heart. You're stuck with what you got, buddy. 
And yet David's saying, God, I need you tomorrow because I am ultimately still the same. I'm forgiven, but I'm still subject to this sinful flesh. God, I need you. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is the first of three times David mentions the spirit. In the Old Testament, unlike us, who have the benefit of God's indwelling permanent spirit as a seal of our salvation, in the Old Testament, the spirit would come and go as God saw fit. And it was given to empower his people. And David says, God, would you renew a steadfast spirit, a firm spirit, one that's not fickle? Because God, I'm fickle. I'm going to get up off my knees in a minute and I know the thoughts that are going to run through my head. God, would you renew a steadfast spirit in me? God, I need you to keep me firm, to keep me from being wishy-washy, to keep me devoted to you. Then he gives two negative requests. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David knows that God can take his spirit away from him. Again, he's not a New Testament believer. He also knows because of an incident that happened several years earlier. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15 for a moment. Keep your finger in the Psalms. We'll come back there. 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king before David was named Saul. And God had sent the prophet Samuel to him and said, Saul, I want you to go and destroy the Amalekites because of what they did to Israel when they were trying to enter the promised land. They didn't come out and battle against them. They kind of hid in the bushes and the sides and picked off the stragglers. The young and the old and those that had fallen behind on the journey, they just kind of came and picked off the weak. And that doesn't make God very happy when we don't take care of the ones that are the least. He says, Saul, go and destroy them. And so Saul went on the campaign, but he didn't quite follow all of the directions. And if you'll start reading with me in verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said... What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? See, Samuel was Saul was to wipe out not only everybody, but also the animals as well. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Notice Saul said, The Lord your God. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did evil? In the sight of the Lord. And then Saul's response is very telling and very different from David's response that we looked at last week. Verse 20, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. First thing he did wrong was 
he doubted he doubted when God said you've messed up oh no I, I did it he's redefining what sin is in his own mind he's not coming humbly and saying you're right Verse 21, but the people took some of the spoil. He's blaming someone else. He's the king, he's the general, he gets to make the rules, but it's the people. It's it's not my fault, God, it's those people you gave me. And yet we saw last week that David wasn't interested in blaming anybody else. He didn't blame Uriah, he didn't blame Bathsheba. He took full responsibility. The end of verse 21. We took the things to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He's trying to to whitewash the sin. Yeah, I know I wasn't supposed to, but it was for a good reason, God. We're going to use it for sacrifices. It's It's really for God's benefit. See, it can't be all that bad. And Samuel says, no, it really is bad. And they have this conversation. Samuel says that he has rejected Saul from being king. And then it appears in 24 that maybe Saul has repented. He says, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words. And maybe he should have just stopped there. But we know he's not truly repentant because he says... Because I feared the people and listened to their voice. He's still trying to lay the blame on someone else. When we're guilty before God, we come to Him and say, I was wrong. And then we close our mouth. Because there's, there's nothing else really to say. They go back and forth again about, you're wrong, no, I'm right. And then maybe the most telling verse of all of how we know that Samuel ultimately is not concerned about God, but about himself. In verse 30, he says, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Honor me. I don't want to look bad in front of the people, God. I don't want, to, I don't want my sin to be out in front of everybody. If you come back with me, it will seem like everything's okay. God, instead of him throwing himself at the mercy of God. Instead of him saying, I have sinned against God, and now I'll just shut my mouth and trust in God's judgment. David says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't cast me from your presence. I know, God, that you have the ability to do that Please don't do that to me. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Again, if if what God has done for us does not bring us joy, then my guess is we don't understand what God has done. We don't understand grace. Or we're choosing not to focus on that. When joy leaves me, when I become worried, frightened, upset, or angry, it is always because I'm focusing on my problem, and then I'm worried because, you know what? I can't fix it. And that's right, I can't. 
instead of falling upon the grace of God and saying, God, if you don't do something here, this situation, this issue, I can't do it. It won't happen. But when we are focused, when we are at the feet of the cross and what really is always before us is the fact that God has saved us and not only has He saved us, He desires to use us and desires to live in us and desires to empower us, that can and should and does bring joy into our lives. And David says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And then he ends with this phrase, and sustain me with a willing spirit. When you think of sustenance, what sustains you? Steak and baked potato? Maybe. Or first thing in the morning, good cup of coffee? Is that, is that what sustains you, at least what, what gets you started? David says, what ultimately sustains me is a a willing spirit. God, if you will empower me with your spirit to do your will, that's enough. I'm satisfied. But that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said the exact same thing. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he's talking to this lady. The disciples have gone to town to get lunch. They come back. They know he's tired because he said, Guys, I'm going to sit here by the well and rest. Y'all go get lunch. The woman leaves and they say, Master, eat. Right? We're on a long journey. You've got to get some food in your belly or you're going to faint on the way. And he says, I've got food you don't know about. And they go, Why did he send us to town then? That's a rough paraphrase. And he says, My... What's my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus says, what sustains me is doing God's will. What keeps me going is being obedient to what God has asked me to do. What allows me to get from point A to point B, what brings me joy, what fills me up is doing God's will. And David says the same thing. Lord, sustain me with a willing spirit. Is that our prayer? When we get up in the morning, is our desire, God, I need your will as a spouse to love my spouse, as a parent to care and nurture and train my children, as a child to be obedient to my parents and love my siblings, as a neighbor to... Invest in those around me with love and ultimately the gospel. As a co-worker to honor my boss. As an employer to honor and protect and care for my employees. As a member of the body of Christ. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. To celebrate, as you have done today, who have made an extra trip to get a little farther than you normally do to watch some people publicly profess that they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is to have this many people show up in a strange place just to celebrate together what God has done in our midst.
I'm thankful for you. Will you, as a body and as individuals, take heed to what David has said to us? When God says you are forgiven, you can trust that. And if you've placed your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, then you can have assurance that that has happened. And unlike David, we have the promise of the permanent indwelling Holy Spirit to empower us, but will we call on Him daily for help, for empowerment, to do the things God has called us to do which are difficult? Honoring Him in worship. Loving our neighbor as ourself. Knowing that like David, when we get off our knees, we're still us. The world is still against us. Our flesh is still against us. Satan is still against us. Will we trust that we need Him not only for our salvation, but for each and every day that we live? Would you pray with me please? Father, we rejoice in Your goodness. We are thankful for Your grace. God, we come to You empty-handed with our, our palms up and our heads bowed because we have nothing to offer You and because You have everything to give to us and we need that. Father, we are thankful that You have indwelt us with Your Spirit. And Father, we humbly come before You and ask that each day that we live, You would help us to honor You, that You would empower us to honor You, that You would open our lips that we might praise You, that You would open our hearts that we might love those around us, even those that are unlovable, at least in our eyes. Because God, we are all unlovable, and yet You chose to love us by sending Your Son. Remind us of that. And God, as we celebrate in a moment by witnessing and enjoying uh, the baptism of these folks, I pray that you would encourage us in our own faith, that you would remind us of that time when we trusted you, and that you would indeed restore to us this day the joy of our salvation. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.